We're going to turn to his word right now, and we're going to talk about a subject that, um, gosh, you just don't hear talked about much in our world today. You know, Christians tend to have a, their own vocabulary, and some of the things that we say are goofy, and, and, and we deserve some of the uh, jibes that we get for words that we use, but then there's other times where we do use certain words as followers of Jesus that uh, we never want to give up. And, and though our culture might diss these words and get rid of them or what have you or not understand them, we dare not ever do that. And one of the words, though not a very popular word today, is the word sin. It is the word that tells us that we are fallen and that we've missed the mark. And again, though, anytime people talk about sin, they tend to talk about it in very dismal terms. I think you're going to see today that we're going to talk today as Peter leads us in our, as we continue our study about this idea of sin in a very life-giving way. In other words, what we can do about it and how we can have less of it in our lives. And so hang with me here this morning, all right? And, uh, and let's dive into his word. So why don't you bow with me and pray. Uh, God, we've been set up in a wonderful way from our worship here today. We've seen some baptisms that are all about new life. Uh, we've been able to worship in song, singing to you. And Lord, as we just experienced, we've been sung over by the uh, choir and hear their testimonies, real life stories of what you've done in people's lives. And so God, we are now more than prepared to turn to your word and to dig a little bit and get some truth for our life. And so God, as we do that here, would you bless us? Would you uh, speak to our minds and our hearts? And may we walk out of here in 35 or 40 minutes, be greatly encouraged by all that you have done. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, as I've already hinted to, there is one thing that I know for sure this morning, and that is that every one of us here today could admit to struggling with some kind of sin in our lives right now. It's true. If you and I were having a cup of coffee at Starbucks, wherever you hang out, and I as your pastor and as your friend all of a sudden said to you, so what sin are you struggling with right now in your life? Every one of you, and me included, could have an answer to that. Amen? And if somehow you couldn't have an answer to that, then only one of two things is happening. Either one, you're in denial, right? In other words, you're just unaware of sin in your life. You haven't given enough attention to 1 John 1.8 when it says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You're just deceived and in denial. And I would pray for you and uh, that God would clobber you over the head and help you see what you're struggling with. Or the second thing that's even kind of worse today that, that might be happening in you if you couldn't identify any kind of sin you're struggling with is that you might just be ignorant of what sin is in the first place. In other words, you've fallen into the great American trap of defining sin in very narrow behavioral terms. You see sin as simply some outward behavioral thing you know, some kind of action like lying or cheating or stealing or committing adultery or something like that. And you would say, well, Jamie, I'm not currently lying or cheating or stealing or being unfaithful to my spouse, so therefore I'm not struggling with sin right now. And in the process of saying this, you would be failing to see or to find sin as the Bible does. Now get this, sin involving not just outward things, but even inward things, like where your emotions are at, where your thoughts are at, and where your attitudes are at. It's fascinating. Look up here on the screen. Paul the Apostle in Romans 14 verse 23 defines sin this way. My brother called me about a year and a half ago, said, Jamie, you're a theologian. Give me a definition for sin. I said, look at Romans 14 23. It says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. <laughs> that settles it right there, right? 
Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so we know that any time it's telling us here that we're not walking with God in his will for us, then we're in some kind of sin. And it might not be some concrete outward behavior. It might be some subtle, internal, even hidden attitude, thought, or emotion. Don't be ignorant about what sin is. But back to my point. This is why I say that each and every one of us battles this thing called sin. We battle at any given moment attitudes like pride, jealousy, and coveting, emotions like unrighteous anger, greed, and unforgiveness, and obviously behaviors like saying things that hurt others and lying and even betraying God and those around us. We sin, and we all know it. Just like the old bumper sticker says, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And that's the reality of part of our Christian life. And yet here's the rub, and that is that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, can you own with me? We don't want to be like this. Amen? I mean, we're chosen. We're redeemed. We're forgiven. We've gone from death to life, as we saw symbolized in our baptisms there. We have the spirit of the living God inside of us that the Bible says teaches us to say no to ungodliness and all the rest. And so deep down, if you are a believer here today, even if you're stuck in some nagging, nonsensical type of sin in your life, i got to believe deep down you don't want to do this. It's not something that you say is a good thing in your life, but you're stuck. As Paul the Apostle would say, our body is dead because of sin, but our spirit is alive because of righteousness. And then along comes Peter, impetuous, down-to-earth, quite familiar with sin, Peter, and he wants to help us get unstuck. And I would submit to you that there's probably no better human being in the Bible to help us both understand and get unstuck in, with sin than Peter. I mean, you remember his journey, right? As an ardent follower of Jesus Christ, he struggled with pride. He got mad at James and John for wanting to be the closest to Jesus. Remember that? And then he struggled with, with lack of faith. He couldn't even walk on water and keep his eyes on Christ, but he began to sink. And then he struggled, worst of all, with faithlessness, being unfaithful to Jesus, denying him in his most time of need, and so much more. Peter knew and experienced this daily battle with sin, and through his years of following Jesus, as well as being inspired by the Holy Spirit, he now writes to us in this book that we're studying here at Scottsdale Bible on how to tip the scales and sin less in our lives as we follow God. And so in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, he offers us no less than four key truths, or three key truths, three powerful take them home with you and apply them kind of truths that do nothing but help us have increasing victory over the things that continue, that consistently tend to trip us up. And so let me give you the first one here. Here's the first thing that he shares with us, and it truly is a starting place, and that is that we need to learn to see Jesus' death and resurrection for what they are, namely, victory over sin. Let me repeat that. The starting place for you and me, if you're at all serious about dealing with that sin, and you know what I'm talking about, that continues to plague you in your life, is to learn to see the death and resurrection for Jesus and for what they are, and that is victory over the sin in your life. And so look at how Peter says this in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
So two things you don't want to miss that he's saying here. First, he's telling us that Jesus' death and resurrection was an atonement for our sins and that this gives us power now over sin's activity in our lives. When he says there, cease from sin, I don't think he's saying cease from every sin, be perfect for the rest of your life. That can't be what he's saying because 1 John 1.8 says that we're going to have sin. What he is saying there is that the power that sin has held over your life before you knew Christ is no longer to the advantage. That you can cease that power that it has over you and sin less. And so notice he says there in verse 1, Christ suffered in the flesh. As we learned last week, Christ paid the price that we should have paid for our sin. He bought us forgiveness and a new chance at life. And so isn't it interesting that Peter says right there, so arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. In other words, each moment of each day, reflect on this stuff. Remember it. Keep it in the forefront of your minds. Remember when you're struggling with saying something that you don't want to say or doing something that you don't want to do, that Jesus Christ died for you. And then he rose again, showing his power over sin and death. And that this now is in you because the Holy Spirit is in you. And that as you engage your faith with him, as you consider yourself dead to sin and present yourself to God, as Romans 6 says, you're going to have times of victory. In other words, engage your faith, Christian, moment by moment of each day when it comes to dealing with sin. Look to him, realize his victory, his resurrection, and you'll start to receive power and strength when you most need it. You know, a few weeks ago, I unveiled the vision of our church, and I said that the um, new vision of our church is to become a community of Christ followers marked by two things. Do you remember this? That we're known for two things, unwavering faith and unconditional love. And I could tell by the looks on some of your faces, that infamous deer in the headlights look, that you just didn't get it. You were thinking, well, that's kind of vanilla, unwavering faith, unconditional love. Guess what? It's not vanilla. I mean, this is exactly what Peter's talking about here. Engage your faith. Have an unwavering faith each moment of each day directed toward Jesus, your Savior, his resurrection, and watch what happens as you identify with Christ and watch his power flow in and through you. That's the first thing Peter's telling us here in these opening verses. But notice that he adds another thing here. here, And he says to not just identify with his resurrection, but to also identify with his suffering and his obedience. In other words, like Jesus, Peter is suggesting here that we too must learn to fight the good fight, to live ruggedly obedient lives, and go through the hard paces of dealing with this world and our own flesh and the evil one as we combat sin and temptations that we face. I mean, this is precisely what he's getting at there in verse 1 when he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Do you see that there? Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And what most commentators point out there is that Peter's talking about Jesus and you and me. (laughs) The fact that Jesus suffered in the flesh. Remember it says in Hebrews 5 that he had to learn obedience, that he was a human being just like us, caught in a body. And so he had to learn obedience through the things that he went through, dealing with temptation and the lure of the flesh and having to trust and depend on God the Father. He had to fight the good fight. What Peter's saying is that just as Jesus suffered in the flesh, you do that too. Pattern yourself after him. Learn to live a ruggedly obedient life as you fight the good fight, as you identify with Christ. And so don't miss, folks, Jesus showed us what it means to deal with temptation. 
He suffered in the process. And here, Peter calls you both to trust in his resurrection power, see the resurrection for what it is, victory, but then also to identify with him in his sufferings and fight the good fight as a way of combating all that comes against you. So have faith and have obedience. That's what Peter's saying. I want to show you in a very practical way uh, how this works. I want you to look up here on the screen. and uh, Tucked away in the middle of the book of James is, is a passage that, that gives us what I would call an anatomy of sin. In other words, it tells us the process of how sin works in our lives. And you're going to find this very revealing. And, and for some of you, you're going to say amen. Others, you're going to say, wow, I never thought of it that way. Look at what James says. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so simplistically speaking, it looks something like this. And that is that when you have temptation in your life, then then you add unchecked desire, it most likely is going to lead to sin. That's what James is saying. That you combine temptation in your life with a runaway desire inside you, and chances are you're a goner when it comes to dealing with sin. And so break this down and tell me if this isn't true. Temptation comes our way. And isn't temptation almost always something from the outside, right? Temptation's an outside-in thing. And so you're shopping at the mall and you're tempted to buy something that you don't need or you can't afford. Or you're tempted to enter into a relationship that you know is not godly for you. Or you're tempted to say something wrong as somebody provokes you who is in your face. Or you act out in rage at an injustice around you. Or as I have confessed many times, and we had some fun with this earlier, you're tempted to eat things that you know you shouldn't eat. Amen? I mean, we all have them. Every one of us has the Cheez-Its issue in our lives, right? Every one of us, as I started to say earlier, has something that we struggle with. And don't miss this. Temptation, this in the form of Cheez-Its, these sinful little crackers, temptation tends to come from the outside. If you don't see anything else, just see that. And it's going to happen in our lives. It's going to be there. It's just part of living in a fallen world. And yet this is just the start, as James tells us. Because right at this point, right when temptation is before us, we then have to contend with a desire. And this desire is not from the outside, it's from the inside. And this desire screams to us to cave in. Can you relate? It screams to us to buy the thing that we don't need or to enter into that relationship that's no good or to say something to that person who's in your face or to lash out at the injustice or to eat the Cheez-Its. Don't miss this. Our temptation is from the outside. It's met and matched by a desire from the inside, a sinful desire that we're born with. And when nothing is done about either of these things, look out. Because caving in is right around the corner, and before you know it, you're going to be hooked. That's exactly what James is trying to tell us here. That when you match temptation with an unchecked desire, you're right on the doorsteps of sin. And yet, by implication, he's giving us something incredibly life-giving here as well. Look up here on the screen. This is so cool. And that is that he's implying here that if you can avoid temptation and check the desire, then you can defeat sin. In other words... Avoid it and check it, and you can defeat it. That's what James is telling us here. That's what Peter is affirming. And it's so awesome when you finally see this work. That the pattern that the Scriptures give us here is that when you match the outward temptation with avoidance, 
and the inward desire by checking it and not allowing it to control you, but you to control it, then you stand a good chance of not falling into that nagging, nasty sin pattern that always seems to win the day. And though some of you laugh when I bring this up, I got to tell you, this is exactly how I deal with these things here. And, you know, I use Cheez-Its as an example, but I think we all know that this is just symbolic of a larger issue that I've confessed in my life of eating things that I know aren't good for me. I love how Josh McDowell said it years ago in a talk I heard him say. He said, I just look at food and I gain weight. And I'm the same way. And so I know for me my Achilles heel for the rest of my life is going to be what I eat. And so for me, when I'm dealing with this temptation, i got to tell you how I deal with it, folks. And that is that I first engage my faith in Christ. And I realize that greater is he that is in me than he who lives in, the, than is in this world. And as I combine this faith that is in me that's pointed toward Christ, I combine it with avoiding temptation, not buying things that I know I shouldn't eat, just getting them out of my house, and then checking my desire. Not giving into it, but being on top of it. And folks, all I can tell you is that when I do this, I stand a really good chance of having victory. I truly realize as we establish that spring that I'm dead to that. In other words, once again, the scriptures prove true. It works. Now, let me give you an illustration that, that all of you will be able to relate to that might help you see why this avoid it and check it thing is so important. How many of you have email and have encountered spam? Raise your hand if you have, right? Gosh, like all of us, those things are just terrible. And so look up here on the screen. Uh, in 2006, which is when I could last find the statistics, we were dealing with spam at a level of 14.5 billion spams a day. So as you guys know, spam is an email that you don't want. It's either an advertisement or maybe even a virus attached to it. And none of us want these things in our email box. But 14.5 billion of them are floating around. And that comprises about 40% of all emails sent throughout the world. And that averages out to about 6 to 7 per person each day, 2,200 a year for the average email user. And get this, it's increasing at about a rate of 65 to 70% each year. I mean, it's just exponentially increasing. And the reason that this is a huge problem is because it costs not just you aggravation, but businesses time and money. In fact, our best guess is that it leads to about 22.9 million lost hours. And some of you engineers are going, how they get that? Well, they average it, they figure it takes about three to five seconds to delete every spam that gets through into your email box. And they did the math, 22.9 million lost hours that translates into $20.5 billion in lost productivity in our culture today. I mean, it's a significant problem. And yet, the reality is, is that we also know how to deal with spam fairly effectively. We got two guys that run our uh, computer ministry here at the church, Devlin and Justin. Give me another click here, guys. And the way that they have taught us to deal with spam is twofold. First, we have to do everything we can to avoid it. So we have a spam filter, an email filter on our server. And get this, Devlin sent out an email recently that said that last month he was able to filter, this is going to blow you away, 100,000 spam emails from coming into the church. 100,000 just into your church. Can you imagine if we had staff trying to delete 100,000 of those things, the lost productivity that we would have? But we were able to, to deal with it. Why? Avoiding it in the first place. Just not even see it come through. That was the first thing. But then they teach us, Devlin and Justin do, that when a spam comes in, Devlin and Justin will send an email out saying, don't open it, right? 
Don't be enticed by that little line that says, Hi, I want to talk to you in the subject line or whatever it says. If you don't know who it's from, hit the delete button. In other words, don't cave into that desire, that curiosity to open it. Just get it out. And that's how we deal with spam. You avoid it and then you guard your heart and you don't open it. And if you can grab onto that, that's exactly what James and Peter are saying about sin in our lives. That if we, through our faith in Christ and through trusting Him and identifying with Him and learning to obey and fight the good fight, if we will but avoid temptation and then guard that desire, that sinful desire in us to, to go down that road, then guess what? You stand a good chance of not going there. And folks, this is how I live. I live in the same world you do. I mean, yeah, I'm a pastor, but I'm also a man. I'm also a Christian. And I battle these things just like you do. And when I have wonderful victory, that's what's going on in my soul. Is that I'm guarding and I'm avoiding. I'm checking and I'm winning. And that's what Peter's trying to communicate to you and me here. So the first thing we need to know is to see Jesus' death and his resurrection for what they are. Victory over sin. That's what he's given us. Now, believe it or not, Peter's not done yet here. In fact, he's just ramping up and helping us understand how to deal with ongoing sin. He talks about a second thing. And this is going to surprise some of you, but this is what he says, and that's this. And that's the secondly, he says to exercise self-control when it comes to sin in your life. Exercise self-control when it comes to the sin in your life. And some of you are saying, what, what's that about? That sounds like some Oprah-type thing, like some secular type of thing. I mean, wh where do you get that? Follow the logic of what Peter's saying here in our text. We're not going to read verses 3 through 6 here, but if you're to read them on your own, you'll see his progression is this. That he starts off by telling us to identify with Christ, and then he says in verses 3 through 5 there that as you identify with Christ and fight the good fight, don't expect those around you to do the same. In other words, all your lost neighbors and friends, they're not going to give a hoot, so just don't join them in doing what they're doing. That's what Peter says. And then in verse 5, he transitions and says, and by the way, judgment's going to come someday for them and even for you, so make sure that you enter the judgment as clean as you can. And then in verse 6, he says something unusual. He says, this is why the, the gospel is preached to those who are dead so that they might have a chance for, for life. And that doesn't mean that Jesus went and preached to dead people. It means that the gospel is preached to those who are dead now, but it was preached to them when they were alive. He's basically saying that those who have passed on have heard the gospel. Your friends that have accepted Christ, use them as an inspiration. And then he gets to verse 7. And continuing in the same vein of talking about how to combat sin, he says something very interesting, seemingly out of nowhere. Look at verse 7 up here on the screen. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Fascinating. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Focus on that little two-part word that we're all familiar with, self-controlled. I've always found it interesting, folks, if not confusing, that this word self-control appears in the Scriptures. I'll explain why. In the wonderful list in Galatians 5, give me another click here, guys. I'm not going to read it, but you can read it while I'm talking here. In this wonderful list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, there's nine fruits of the Spirit. And most of the fruits of the Spirit listed here, you would think intuitively, should be here, right? So things like love and joy and peace and patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, all these things. You'd say, well, duh, that's what the Holy Spirit hopefully would bring to our lives because we can't do those things on our own, but we need those things to walk with God and love others. 
So therefore, isn't it wonderful that that appears in the list of the fruits of the Spirit? This is what the Spirit brings to our lives so that we can live the Christian life. And then lastly, it lists this word self-control. And it just doesn't seem to fit like the others do. In other words, we would expect the Spirit to create these other things in our lives, but self-control, at least the way we see it, is usually some human-based kind of fleshly thing, isn't it? I mean, it's self-control, me controlling myself. And so why does self-control appear in a list of stuff that the Spirit is supposed to do in you? How would you answer that question? For years, I've been kind of, you know, just mulling this over. And what became clear to me a few years ago is that maybe God knows exactly what he's doing here, like read massive understatement in that, and it hit me that self-control in the Bible is probably not defined as our world defines self-control. In other words, listen very close. We define self-control as me controlling myself, but maybe the Bible defines self-control as God's Spirit, because this is the fruit of the Spirit, empowering the self to be more controlled. And I think that's what God is saying here in Galatians 5 and in 1 Peter. That the Holy Spirit, who indwells each and every follower of Jesus, has freed us up to now be able to truly exercise self-control in dealing with the sin and the passions that are in our lives. In other words, the Spirit empowers our spirit, our will, to have more control. I think that's what Paul is getting at here and Peter affirms. So here's my biblical definition of self-control. It's the spirit-given ability to restrain your emotions, impulses, and desires. You like that? It's the spirit-given ability to restrain one's emotions, impulses, and desires. It's God's Holy Spirit living inside every believer, giving us the ability to not cave in, to out of control, even wrong, but strong passions. It's God's Spirit giving our will the strength to obey Him. And get this, you can't get around the fact that in the context of Galatians 5, this is true about every follower of Christ de facto just by being a Christian. In other words, we're tempted to say, well, yeah, I can exercise self-control when I feel like it, or I can exercise self-control when I feel strong, well, duh, anybody can do that. What the scriptures are saying here is that you can exercise self-control because you're a Christian. Do you see the difference? Because the Holy Spirit lives in you, you are by nature, God is saying here, because the fruits of the Spirit are this, self-controlled. You can do this. And folks, when you finally get this, it's powerful. I'll never forget one of the first times I realized this truth about self-control. I'd only been a Christian for about a year. And I was a young guy in, in my late teens and off at college. And, and uh, I was struggling, as a lot of teens do, with, with many things in my life. And one of them was patience with everything. Uh, but mainly patience with my family, who at that time were not yet Christians. And so I'd go home over summer break and spring break and all this. And I'd just struggle with, with patience and all the, the, the goofy things that, that were going on in my family. And so I find myself saying things to my mom and dad, my brother and sister, that, that I know we're not becoming of one who's a follower of Jesus. And so one day I was studying the Bible with my friend Bill. We were from the same high school and back over summer break. And I said to Bill, I said, uh, at the end of the Bible study, I said, you know, I, I need you to pray for me. I'm struggling with patience in my life with my family. He looked at me and he said, I'm not going to pray for you. And I said, why not? And he said, because patience is an issue of obedience and you should just do that and give me something more substantive to pray for in your life. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, 
well, this is the end of this Bible study, pal. Like, if that's how you respond to me, it's like, go find somebody else, you know? And the guy ended up being the best man in my wedding. You know why? Because everybody needs a Nathan, right? All of us need to have people in our lives who are going to challenge us. And this man, Bill, became that kind of friend for me. He never let me be a spiritual wimp. He always called me to be kind of a, a spiritual giant. And when you think about it, folks, in many ways, he was right. In many ways, he was right to tell me I'm not going to coddle you by praying for you here. Because look at this text again. Guys, go back one, one last thing here. You took it off too soon. Yeah, look, look at what Peter says there. This is fascinating. Peter does not tell us to pray for self-control here. He tells us, tells us to be self-controlled so that we can pray. Right? You see the difference? And so again, a lot of us tend to say, oh, I guess I should pray for this. I'm struggling. This. What? Okay, that might be fine. Reality is God has said, guess what? I've already enabled you to do it, so just do it. Be self-controlled. That's what Peter is saying. Don't pray about it. Do it so that you can pray. And folks, one of the reasons that this is so important is that when you finally understand this, when you finally understand that the reason the scriptural writers call us to this level of self-control is because we can do it, and there are no more victims then in our lives. We're not victims anymore. How many times have you ever heard a Christian imply, the devil made me do it? You've heard that, right? Or how many times have you heard a Christian basically say, you know, the temptation was just too strong. I couldn't control myself. You ever heard that one too? Or how many times have you heard a Christian just say, you know, just the temptation, others just had too much influence over my life. Hogwash. Every one of those things, every one of those excuses from a biblical perspective does not hold water. None of them. There's no victims. You will not be able to get to the judgment seat of Christ and point fingers. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Or as I've said for years, the judgment seat of Christ will not be a small group event. You're going to appear before God someday and give an account for your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's going to say, I blessed you, as Ephesians 1.3 says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Everyone. So that you would be without excuse in being able to walk with me. And, and, and I know it's sobering, folks, but, but there are no victims here today. Now, one of the things that makes me such a great people helper when I work with people is I see none of you as victims. I don't. And I don't allow you to try to snow me into thinking you're a victim. I have such respect for your walk with God and for your personhood as created in his image that I know that if you take him at his word, your life can be pleasing to him. Amen? I mean, that's what he's called us to do. And so I believe every one of you can be self-controlled. I believe I can be self-controlled. You have to be a man or a woman about it. And so here's how it works. I mean, there's times where is it that I'm struggling with these things again. And it's late at night and I'm lonely and I'm hungry, and I'm empty, and I'm feeling all the things that all of you feel, if you're honest with yourselves, and, and, and Kim's already gone to bed, and the kids are in bed, and I'm either, you know, watching Law and Order or reading some book on theology, and, and I think, I want to eat. That's what I think. I think, I want to eat. No, you're 20 pounds too heavy. No, I want to eat, and I don't want to eat carrots. I want to eat carbs. That's what I think. Can you relate? I do. And I say, I want to eat carbs. I want to eat lots of them. And, and we don't keep these in our cupboard. They're in Abby's room because she's the only one that lets herself eat these because she's so thin anyways, you know. And so they're in Abby's room. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm so sinful. I'm thinking, maybe I could like sneak into Abby's room, not wake her, find the cheeses. And I'm thinking, and there's sometimes where I go, okay, engage your faith, engage your faith, victory over sin, all that stuff. And I'm doing that. And there's other times where I just say, stop it, Rasmussen. 
be a man. <laughs> Exercise self-control. I mean, if you can't have control over little cheese crackers, then God help you, right? I mean, think about it. We look so silly when we're battling things. I mean, how silly do you look when you're at Nemus Marcus and you know you don't have the money to do this and you're about to put down plastic and, you know, I want to do this. No, I shouldn't. I want to do it. No, I shouldn't. You look goofy doing that. It's just a thing. Think about how we look. And the Bible says exercise some self-control. Have a little self-discipline in your life. You ever heard of the word obedience? Do that. And you have victory over sin. And I got to tell you, that works. There's times where I just go, I'm not playing this game. I'm going to exercise self-control. I'm going to go to bed a little bit hungry. I'll wake up feeling better. That's a good thing to do. So Peter's telling us to identify with Christ. He's telling us to be self-controlled. And then lastly, as kind of a third win in his trifecta here, this is so cool, he says this. He says, engage in consistent community with other believers. Wow, does this fit together well. Look at what he says. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Again, this isn't a topic of dealing with sin. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace, varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so don't miss the overt challenge here. I love this. And that is namely as you, as you go about walking with God and identifying with Christ in his death and resurrection, as you go about exercising self-control through the indwelling Holy Spirit, he's saying realize that you also need others, that none of you are an island. And I love how he tells us this. You need others in both fellowship and service. Did you pick up on that? Give and take. So I loved our, our choir member friend's testimony there that he was anchored to the pew for all those years. And he finally realized that part of community is getting out of the pew and involved in fellowship and service. So give me another click here, guys. Notice the pattern that Peter's giving us here. He says that when you get in community, you will experience love in the form of forgiveness and that that covers over so many sins. You've all experienced that, right? I, I mean, somebody loves you and you wrong them, and you go to them, and, 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 and you basically say, I'm so sorry, and they'll say, I, I forgave you the second you did it. What's that about? Love covers over a multitude of sins. You'll experience that in community. And then he's telling us to experience tangible, physical needs being met in community, hospitality, people loving you tangibly in the name of Jesus. And then, because so both those are take kind of things, you get to experience giving in community. You get to use your gifts to serve, and he says even to speak into other people's lives, words of affirmation and challenge. I mean, knit all this together. He's telling us that community is a powerful, powerful resource in dealing with sin that plagues us as well. And all I can tell you, folks, is that this has been my journey now for 25 years of being a Christian. There's not been one cultural setting that I've found myself in, whether it was in Michigan at college or in Chicago at seminary, or in my first pastor in Detroit, or the couple of years I spent in Ontario, or six years back at my home church in Cleveland, or even here right now, where I have not been in intimate fellowship with other men and Kim and I with other couples in our lives. Never been a time. Why? Because I'm weak? No. It's because I know that if I'm going to live the ruggedly obedient and faithful life that God has called me to, I can't do it alone. And that I need people to love me, to show hospitality to me. I need people to speak words of affirmation, as we saw with my friend Bill, challenge to me. 
And I can't tell you how many times they've saved me from many a sin. You know, for pastors, we don't tend to struggle as much with the outward stuff. We tend to struggle with a lot of internal dragons and things that rear their ugly head in our lives. Jealousy, pride, greed. I mean, it's just alive in my profession. It's terrible stuff. And so we need this just as much as anybody else does. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in community and had people provide an internal check for me on my pride and my coveting and my greed and all the other things that might we deal with in our 21st century American culture. It really works. And so here's what you're left with this morning. And that is, what are you going to take home with you today and begin to implement? For some of you, identifying with Jesus, engaging your faith, doing that, avoiding and checking so that you can defeat it, is going to be what you take home. And I encourage you, apply that immediately. Others of you, you needed to hear about self-control. No more excuses. You've played victim long enough. You're a believer in Christ. He's empowered you. Do it and engage in self-control. And then maybe for some of us, we're going to be doing really well on those. Maybe what we need to do is like our choir friend, we just need to, to get in community where we get honest and authentic with those around us and, and start to, to do life together with some other people, taking the risk that's involved in that. All I know is that when you do these things, you stand a good chance of breaking that pattern of sin. You'll never get away from it completely. Again, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, the Scriptures say. But that doesn't mean that the body of sin, that the pattern of sin needs to have a stranglehold on our lives. It does not. And this is Peter's recipe for dealing with that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, in the Scriptures, once again, you meet us right in our moment of need and struggle, right in our moment even of inquiry, and you give us wisdom, you give us help, and you give us, in a very real sense, a way out. And Father, I think of uh, a great passage in 1 Corinthians um, 10, 13, where it says that there's no temptation that we can confront that you're not familiar with, and that every time we have one, you will provide a way out. And part of Peter's teaching here is our way out. And so, Father, I pray that as we might feel challenged, even encouraged on this idea of identifying with you through our faith, making sure our faith is engaged with you each moment of each day, that, that God, you give us victory. Help us to see the resurrection for what it is, victory. Help us to avoid and to check our desires and to avoid sin. Father, I pray, too, that for some of us, we need to engage in um, self-control, that, God, you'd help us to be more self-controlled. Help us to not have any excuses any longer, but to live up to the position that you've placed us in, the calling that you've given us to be self-controlled followers of Jesus. And Father, lastly, I pray for those of us who might need to be in community, that, Lord, now would be the time we take this step. No more excuses, but that we join a choir, attend an enrichment class, get into a small group, start serving somewhere, either in this campus or in the community. And, Father, as we do these things, Lord, would you strengthen us? Would you give us victory? Would you help us to live those, those set-apart, salt-and-light kind of lives that Jesus taught us to live? So God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the wonderful time of worship, the baptisms, the testimonies. Thank you for your word that never disappoints us. And we go now in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.